You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. If you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand in honor of God's word. And this morning, I'll be reading from John 4, verses 20 through 24. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who... Okay. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the truth and love revealed in your word. We are um, just so grateful for who you are and for your steadfast love. Um, I thank you for the words you've given Ed this morning, and I pray that you will strengthen and encourage him as he teaches us more about you. Lord, I pray for those today who are mourning the loss of their family members 21 years ago. Um, we know that in this world there's, there's sorrow and there's mourning, but we also rest in the peace of your promise that you have overcome this world. And we thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy, and I pray that we will continue to lean into, lean into you for guidance and allow your word to transform us from the inside out. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are our anchor. We're so used to saying that that your word is our anchor. Well, that's true, but it only is because of you, and it's your word to us. Uh, Thank you in this uh, crazy, sinful world that Uh, is sometimes very evident to us, like on uh, 9-11, and many times not so obvious, and in in other ways very obvious again uh, in our own lives and in others. It's a very sinful world, but you are in control. And we thank you for that, and we know our future in Christ, and we thank you for that. And we thank you for uh, Jesus' uh, encounter with the Samaritan woman, and we thank you for having the Apostle John record it. Uh, we we uh, lift all of this uh, time together uh, before you in your name. Amen. Okay, so how do you think of God? Yeah, I'm going to need it. Those are spotlights. Wow, that's amazing. How do, how do you think of God? How does he want you to relate to him? These may sound like simple questions, but they're crucial for us to think about each in our own lives. Sure, theologically, we can kind of take a a stab at knowing who God is because he's told us some things, and so we know that. And I can take a stab theologically at knowing who he is. But what's my actual relationship to him? You know, it's really centered around his love, which is far greater and more enduring and supportive of me as his child than I could ever begin to imagine. 
We see God's love, of course, when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ. But God created us in the first place in his image so that we can relate to him and that we can have intimate fellowship with him, receive his love on an intimate level. Think of the absolute pinnacle of the love that you've had for your spouse or your children or for anybody else who's really significant in your life or has been. Now, multiply and increase that by infinity. Apologies to math people if that isn't possible, but you get the idea. Take, take the, you know, the highest, purest love you've ever had, multiply it by infinity, and then we have just this tiniest little glimpse of the love of God. And by, by actually that, I mean multiply yours by infinity and take away any hint of selfishness. And then we have just a, a small glimpse. And sorry about that. I don't know what I'm doing. This, uh, I don't think I'm touching it. That's up here. Uh, maybe it's this. So anyway, uh, it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of who God is and his love for us. And we begin, we begin to see his love for his children that way. So worshiping God really should be our natural reaction to him, shouldn't it? God has given us directives in the church. All people who have truly repented and placed their trust in Jesus Christ are part of the church. And that's either all of us or almost all of us probably here today. And uh, if anybody's just tuning in on Facebook, I hope you know Jesus Christ. One of the major purposes for the church as a whole and for each of us is that we're called to worship God. A true disciple of Jesus Christ will worship God. Now, the English word for worship means to attribute worth to an object. Worthship. To worship God is to ascribe to him the supreme worth to which he alone is worthy. In general, that sounds great, but what does it really mean? What is worship? What does it look like? All too often today, we speak only of our singing together as worship, and we should be worshiping God when we sing together. We definitely should be, but is that all that worship is? Or does worship involve more than our singing together to God? Worship's a big subject, and this morning we'll look at five principles that comprise what I will call the heart of worship. Now, as we look at what worship is, each one of us should turn the microscope on our own heart because just a theological lesson doesn't do me any good. Uh, I can think it does sometimes. Wow, I'm getting closer to God because I know more. Well, no, not really. I need to turn the microscope on my own heart and examine my own relationship with the Lord. As we go through these five principles, of the heart of worship, I'm going to challenge you to pick just one and determine how uh, you will, how it will affect or change your worship with God this week. In the fourth chapter of the gospel, according to John, we read of an encounter that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman. Now, most of us know that story, uh, or I should say account. Story is a good word, but I don't like it because it sounds like fiction. 
it's, it's an actual account from the Apostle John who was there of what happened. Now, Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies. They hated each other. And the roots of their conflict and their hatred ran, ran deep. They were religious, they were racial, and they were historical. Uh, think of the worst enemies you can think of. That was how the Jews and the, and the Samaritans thought of each other. No Jewish rabbi or teacher in Jesus' day would ever sit down with a woman either uh, out in public and talk, especially because she was of questionable, probably, character, because she was coming out there alone to the well in the middle of the day, which wasn't the typical thing, and she was a Samaritan. But there's something we know about Jesus. He's not like other people. He wasn't like other teachers then. He's not like any, any of us now. Hopefully, some of us reflect him a little bit, but not much compared to who he is. He loved and loves everyone. Now, as we look at John 4, verses 20 to 24, we dry, dive right into the middle of that conversation with the Samaritan woman. There's a huge amount we can tell from that passage, and we're not going to. Just these five verses we're going to concentrate on. But let's take just a moment first to look at that slide behind me that I prepared. Jesus' teaching can be expressed as the heart of worship in two different ways. You can see the symbol of a heart on that slide back there. The heart in scripture is the center and deepest part of our personality. In other words, it's what makes me tick in my mind, will, and emotions. It's what makes you tick. Naturally, that has to be involved in worship. We're made in the image of God to work into fellowship with him. So that has to be involved at our deepest level. The heart is essential in worship. And then you see a target with a dart in it, uh, a bullseye. That, and that depicts in a different way the heart of the issue, the center and focus and content of our worship. And so those aren't going to tell you anything more about what we're doing, but it's maybe something to latch on to, you know, in, in the brain to remember. And then there's a picture of a person kneeling before the cross. Although Jesus tells us in John 4 about worshiping the Father, Jesus also said, as recorded in John 5, 23, he who does not honor the Son, that is Jesus Christ, does not honor the Father who sent him. And the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, when he was writing to the Corinthians, I desire to know nothing among you Corinthians other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then, of course, we have John 14, 6, where Jesus said of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, Let's look at our portion of John 4. You've heard the scripture read this morning, but let's again pick up the conversation with the Samaritan woman speaking in verse 20, and you don't need to cue in that slide. I just want to read it. Our fathers, and this is the Samaritan woman speaking, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people out to worship, tried to dodge 
issue with Jesus. It didn't work. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. And the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father is seeking uh, to, to be his worshipers. I just mixed that up with the version that I'm more familiar with. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There's something very powerful and very beautiful when a group of believers gather together as we have this morning and as we were singing and will again sing praises to the Lord. Uh, I've been privileged to go to the Philippines a few times and to witness firsthand the enthusiasm and wholehearted devotion to Christ of so many of the believers there. And Nick and Rebecca have, have been there also and, and know full well what I'm talking about. The year before COVID hit, Jane went with me and was treated for the first time to an experience with the church, worshiping together there in song. Everyone was singing from a full heart. In fact, even though the people next to me were singing loudly, and actually I'm referring to you, Rebecca, and I could tell that not because I heard it from what I'm about to say. I could not distinguish Rebecca's voice individually. She was about as far from me as, uh, as this music stand. And I, you know how you once in a while you move your head a little bit? I could tell she was singing at the top of her lungs. You could not distinguish her voice. You could not distinguish anybody's individual voice. They were all singing so fully and wholeheartedly to the Lord, but they weren't clones. Some had their hands raised. Some were swaying with the music, which was a little, little Filipino to do. Uh, others, uh, another guy on the other side of me was just had his head bowed contemplatively and singing fully while he was doing it. But people love the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what we should be doing when we sing together. And Jane kind of summed it up uh, when she said to me after that, she said, I could worship with these people all day long. That was her first experience with them. But you know, we don't need to be in a church building or in our own room or in any other particular location to worship God. In fact, our first principle is found in verses 20 and 21. The first principle, the place of our worship. My ability to worship God does not depend on my location. Now, that's a lot different from the Old Testament. And they could worship God elsewhere, but they were supposed to be in one particular place. Jesus said, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He didn't mean you weren't going to worship him either place. You didn't have to be there. The location where we worship is not important. We don't have to go to a temple in Jerusalem to worship God. We don't always have to be in a worship service to worship God. Although clearly the New Testament tells us we should gather together uh, and worship him in, in, in praise and singing and fellowship in many different ways. 
we can worship God anywhere in the mountains, which I dearly love and have spent hours and hours hiking through when I was actually in shape and younger. The beach uh, is another place. Crowded street, we can worship God there. Living room or even a prison cell. Now, I'm a wimp. I am hoping that never in my life am I thrown in prison. Uh, that's a little bit unlike Martin Luther, who, who uh, was hoping that he would be the first martyr of the Reformation. But at any rate, I'm not on Luther's scale. I'm more of a wimp, and I really don't want to go to prison. But if God desires to put me or you in prison, then he desires to do that, and he will give us the strength. But the simple fact is that people throughout the world are in prison cells or worse for the gospel of Jesus Christ that does not prevent them from worshiping God. Um, the point is that there are no requirements as to a particular place we need to be to worship. The second principle is found in verse 22, and that's the focus of my worship. I am to worship God, but we get kind of fuzzy feelings as to what that is sometimes. I'm to worship God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. He's especially, of course, revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the woman, we, that is the Jews, worship what we know. Through the Scriptures, the Jews knew the God of the Bible. We need to know him that way. He's not a God of our creation. He's not a God of our imaginings. He's not a God who is however we would like him to be. He's revealed himself in the Bible. That's who we worship. The older and more mature I become, the more I realize I just need to know God. Earlier, it was, I need to know everything I can. And now, the, the more it goes on, the more I think, I just need to know him. But if we need to know the true God in order to worship him. Who is he? Well, let's just think of a few things. God is sovereign. That means he's totally in control of our world and of our circumstances. Do we really believe that? God is sovereign or he is not. He's one or the other. Now, a sovereign God who's evil would be a terrible thing to have to deal with. But God is good, and naturally, I mean, well, he's naturally, but he's totally trustworthy. Do we believe that when life is hard? He's either good and trustworthy, or he's not. C.S. Lewis put God's sovereignty and goodness together for us in a beautiful little uh, story, and it's part of... Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which, of course, is part of the Chronicles of Narnia. When the four children in the story are told about Aslan, and if you don't know anything about that, Aslan, Aslan is the great lion who is the Christ image of, of the Chronicles of Narnia. And when the four children in the story are first told about Aslan, the great lion, Mrs. Beaver tells the children... If there's anything, anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, 
said Lucy, the little girl. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Or as Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, who, who people called the Prince of Preachers years ago, a couple centuries ago, put it, were it not for God's superabounding mercy, we should all be in hell. Were it not for his unspeakable goodness, we should this day have no hope of grace, no prospect of pardon, no assurance of a holy, happy heaven hereafter. But the simple fact is that God is good. The simple fact is that in Christ we have forgiveness of sins, we have righteousness, and we have a glorious inheritance. And God is also holy. And in that holiness, he loves us with a love that's full, without limit, and inexhaustible. If you're his child, nothing you have ever done or will ever do can cause him to love you less. In fact, nothing you have ever done or will ever do can cause him to love you more either, which is a pretty amazing thing. You so forget your performance. You don't have to worry about it. Think about that. It's in fellowship with God, not in how well I do, but in fellowship with God that I actually find my fulfillment. How can we and how can I help but worship a God like that? Do we read the Bible? Do you spend every day in the Bible getting to know God better? Jesus went on to say to this woman, salvation is from the Jews. Literally, salvation is out of the Jews, just like you might dump beans out of a can. It's out of that. Salvation is out of the Jews. We don't say that in English because it sounds kind of weird. So it's translated from. Uh, but what Jesus was saying here is that he is out of the Jews in the sense that he was born a Jew. Doesn't mean he's limited to that, but he was born a Jew. He came from the Jewish nation. The scriptures came from the Jews. God has provided for our salvation beginning with his initial promise in Genesis 3.15 that he would send a redeemer to crush the head of the serpent. That promise culminated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus took the penalty of every sin and every horrible thing that you and I and every person in the history of the world ever committed or will commit. And that includes the very worst that we can think of, like Adolf Hitler, or the worst sex offender you can think of, or anybody else. Jesus paid for all of that and took it upon himself. No wonder the worship in heaven is worthy as the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, and honor, and glory, and dominion forever and ever. And I, I love the way that worship in heaven includes the Father and the Son, because the Father sent the Son. He was just as involved. He didn't live here and do the suffering. He had to turn his back on his Son. Uh, on the cross. 
In verses 23 to 24, Jesus tells us something very critical and crucial about how God, about God and how we're to worship him. And that's the third uh, principle that I have here, the manner of our worship. The manner of my worship of God is to be in spirit and truth. In Koine Greek, the language in which this was written, the writer could emphasize a word or a quality just by putting it in a different spot in the sentence from which it normally would be. And literally, uh, the way Jesus said this, because the way John recorded it, is spirit is God. Now, we don't say that. Uh, that would conjure up all sorts of weird New Age connotations in English that aren't what Jesus was talking about. What Jesus was doing, it was emphasizing spirit. God is spirit. He's not like us. My dear woman, you, my dear Samaritan woman, and any of you people here and anybody listening and anybody and the Jews at that point, God it doesn't have a body like you and, you and me. He's a spirit. That's what he's really emphasizing. He has no physical form. God is different from us, but we've been made in God's image to fellowship with him and to worship with him. And in doing that, God gave us a spirit with it so that we could have that fellowship with him. God expects and wants us to worship with him with our whole being, with all of our heart, if you'll think back to to the images here at the start on the first slide I had. He doesn't want only a part of us. He doesn't want us going through the motions, which can be easy to do sometimes. He want, doesn't want us to just look or act a certain way when we worship him. Are your heart and mind completely engaged? when you worship God. Now, that sounds easy, and it sounds like they should be at all times, but I always have to, uh, and I don't always remember to do this, unfortunately, but I, I always need to examine myself and think, am I really fully engaged in worshiping God? Am I worshiping him in spirit? The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 3.3, 3, we worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Worship that is acceptable to God, and I don't have these on a slide, but I have just three things from Philippians 3.3 3 is where that is. Worship that's acceptable to God is in his spirit. And to do that, it has to be from a believer who's filled with the spirit and walking by the spirit. That requires fellowship with God and obedience. Worship that's acceptable to God glories in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us. It isn't just feeling good. It's thinking, wow, Jesus, thank you for who you are and what you've done for me and continue to do. Am I experiencing and enjoying fellowship with Jesus? And the third thing is worship that is acceptable to God puts no confidence in the flesh. None whatsoever. If there were any reason to have confidence in the flesh, Jesus wouldn't have come and taken our sin upon him. Nothing I have ever done or, or will do 
uh, is anything to put any confidence in. I can't have any reliance on any outward form of worship, whether that be a type of singing or praying or whatever it might be. Or in the order in which we do things. And I'm not uh, lobbying for a change in the order of our service. That's not what I'm doing. But we can fall into a ritual by doing things a certain way and, and time. And that's not what it is either. Jesus also said that we must worship God in truth. We worship in all sincerity. We have to do that. But we also must worship with a true knowledge of God and his word. True worship of God is based on a true knowledge of God and his word. That knowledge is to bear fruit in our minds and hearts. God does want us to have head knowledge of him. Sometimes we can turn the other way and think he doesn't. He wants us to have a head knowledge of him for sure and of his word. But that has to be combined, and that's the tricky part, with the deepening heart knowledge through fellowship with him plus a desire to obey him. In fact, we can define true worship as genuine spiritual devotion combined with true knowledge of God and his word and a willingness to obey him. It's a beautiful thing to worship God in a community of believers such as we have here, and I mentioned that earlier, with the family of God. But worship must start in my own heart. It can't be dependent upon being with other believers because then I can be depending upon them and the form and not on Jesus. Now, that can be here in my room, in my car, when someone cuts me off on the freeway, uh, although it's harder then, but that can be there then, uh, which can be inclusive of, Lord, thank you that I'm still alive and I'm doing well and that you protected me. It's an immediate thought of the Lord. Uh, it's not that we close our eyes and pray as we're driving. He's capable of, of steering the car, but I don't think that's what he intends to do. Uh, or we could be with just one other believer in addition to alone. That brings us to the fourth principle that wor about worship, and that's discovered in Jesus' word that he used for worship in verses 23 and 24. The fourth one, my attitude in worship is to be one of humility, submission, and reverence. Now, the verb that Jesus uses here is proskuneo. That's the main verb used for worship in the New Testament. It's the most common word. But what it means is to fall on one's face in front of someone, to bow down and kiss the hand or feet of someone. And in the Oriental world over there, uh, especially among the Persians, the word was used of one falling upon his knees and touching his head to the ground as an expression of profound reverence. Now, obviously, God isn't com concerned, as we've just been talking about, what we look like doing it, but that has to be the attitude of our heart. I am the creature. He's the creator. I'm the one in need of grace, of saving grace, not only initially, but every day of my life. He is the one 
who gives that grace and provided it. Uh, yes, worship does involve celebration, but primarily it's an attitude of humility and reverence before God. And so we come to our fifth principle, and we find that in Romans 12, verse 1. Now, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a scripture all Christians would do well to memorize, and perhaps many of, many of you and many of us have. But let's just concentrate on verse 1. Paul writes to the Romans, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In the Old Testament, God had commanded the Israelites to make various sacrifices. The picture here in Romans 12, 1 is of the burnt offering. And what the person would do is bring a, uh, an animal, a very you know, type of animal, there were different ones for different sacrifices, uh, without blemish, to the temple, uh, and place his hands on the head of the animal that was to be sacrificed. The animal was then killed and totally consumed by the fire. And what it was was the person who was presenting the sacrifice was saying by that, I identify with this animal in terms of I am offered to God and I am offered to be totally consumed by God my entire life in front of him and notice that Paul says that uh, it's to be a, for us a living and holy sacrifice God isn't interested in a sacrifice of death he's provided that through Jesus Christ but he wants your life, and he wants my life. And that is our spiritual service of worship. And the word that's, that is translated spiritual is logikos, which is from what, where we get the English words logic and logical. And when you think about it, offering myself totally to God whether I actually do it or not at all times, and I don't, unfortunately, so many times, but offering myself totally to God is the only logical, reasonable thing for me to do. Uh, and it's in light of the mercies of God, and that brings us back to the love of God as shown in Christ Jesus, a love which is inexhaustible, never failing, and without limit. That is who we're worshiping. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He adopted us as his children through Jesus Christ to himself, and he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Has, not will. Oh, he's going to show his kindness to us throughout eternity, but he has given us all that already. How can you and I offer God anything less than ourselves? We love because he first loved us. How's it possible for me to do anything but love a God who loves me like that? And actually, it's in my relationship 
with God that I am totally fulfilled. People like to look for fulfillment. We all do. We can't find fulfillment anywhere other than in him. We were created for him. Uh, I think it was Augustine. Uh, it was either Augustine or Pascal. and We're several centuries apart there. But one of them said that God has created a heart-shaped vacuum within us. Uh, that's that's for him a god-shaped vacuum within us that's 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 meant really meant to drive us to him i didn't look up the quote and i can't remember it exactly notice here in in verse one um that uh where where was i yeah that paul calls this worship okay i've been through that um what does offering our life to god look like offering myself to God has several different looks it can have like my friend Mike uh, who has planted several churches was a missionary in Argentina uh, is now a missionary leader and has been for years and continued to serve Christ through unimaginable crippling nerve pain in his foot Offering ourselves to God can look like my friends Steve and Joyce. Steve, my best friend for years and years. Uh, in retirement, they, a few, they lost their home in paradise a few years ago. And that's with all of the pictures, all of the mementos, everything. Yeah, just escaped with their lives. All the memories. Well, that's a heavy loss. And as we get older, the heavier that is. But since then, it seems like all they've done is, is encounter one severe trial after another. They both have huge medical issues. They both have uh, huge concerns for an adult child who has big-time medical issues, and two grandchildren. All of that's come about since the Paradise Fire. Nevertheless, Steve and Joyce continue to love Christ and to serve him actively. Now, sure, they have struggles, as we all can, when they encounter these trials. But Joyce herself has said, I'm thankful that I have trials and sufferings so that I can really know Christ. Without trials and sufferings, I would not know Jesus nearly as well as I do. And I just go, I'd like to be like that. But that is what God can do in our lives. Steve and Joyce trust God in working out his perfect will in their lives and the lives of their children and their grandchildren. And I'm sure you can think of many other examples specific to yourself or to close friends. So five principles we need to always remember and apply concerning the heart of true worship. Please, as I said at the start, just pick one of them and really think through how you can make it more of a reality in your life beginning right now. How you can turn to the God who loves you and, yearn and yearns for your love and fellowship. Allow me to repeat these five principles slowly. I'm just going to read them. First, the place of my worship. My ability to worship God does not depend upon my location. And by the way, I'm not 
taking anything away from being a particular place for a quiet time or something as far as that that helps you. That, that's not what I mean. But it's not dependent upon, I don't have to be in a particular place. Second, my focus, I am to worship God as he has revealed himself, especially as seen in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Third is the manner. I am to worship God in spirit and truth. Fourth, my attitude uh, from that meaning of the word used for worshiping God in, in John. To have humility, submission, and reverence as the key to my worship. And fifth, lifestyle. A life of worship. My worship must include offering myself to God in everything I say do and think. How will you worship God this week? And with that, we turn to worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, doing what he gave us as one of the things that he wanted us to remember. I'll give you just a second, especially if you've never encountered these before. <laughs> There's, a, there's kind of a little uh, cellophane thing above the other thing that you get off to get the uh, supposed bread. But, that, but it's, it's what we're using it as anyway, so that's fine. As we noticed earlier in looking at a slide, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No wonder the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.2 that he desired to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ himself, of course, is God. We know that. Christ is worthy of all worship. And Christ's sacrifice on the cross was an absolute necessity for you and me. So we now come to remembering that sacrifice. Jesus gave us only two forms or, or demonstrations to practice as a church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, because he doesn't want a ritualistic religion. But these are two things that point to such crucial and deep spiritual realities that he gave those to us. With that in mind, all those who have personally trusted Jesus Christ who have personally placed their trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation as their Lord and Savior are invited to join in celebrating the Lord's Supper. And before we do that, let's be reminded of the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. This is right after he's told them about what Christ did, and I'm going to get back to that. But he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Now, is God telling us, don't you dare participate in the Lord's Supper? No, that's not what he's saying. 
he's not saying don't participate if you're unworthy. If he did that, that would disqualify every single one of us. He said don't do it in an unworthy manner. Examine yourself as to where your heart is before the Lord right now. Jesus died because we are unworthy. But we're not to participate in this in an unworthy manner. We're to examine ourselves. Then we can participate with a repentant, thankful, and joyful heart. So we'll take a moment now to pray silently, whatever's on your heart before God, and then I'll lead us. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Shall we partake together? Lord, we thank you so much for your sacrifice. And he took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Thank you so much. And we can't say anything other than thank you, Lord. Amen.